Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 37th episode of Crime Over Wine, the only podcast with head-scratching true crime stories that are just better over a bottle of wine. I'm your host, Liam Collins, and this week, my guest host is the host of another true crime podcast, also based right here in the volunteer state of Tennessee. My guest co-host this week is Jordy Smith. Hello, Jordy. Hello, Liam. So nice to talk to you here. <laughs> yeah, so excited. So Jordy is the host of Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast focused solely on crimes either committed by or against the LGBTQ plus community. And I know um, I'm a listener, so I know that you do a lot of like historical, you know, like historical stuff too involving the LGBTQ plus community. Um, I'm wondering where the where that whole idea came from, right? Because a lot of I know this very well. I need to kind of like carve out your niche in the in the true crime world. And so I'm wondering where this idea came from. Yeah. So that's the thing. So like I'm a huge, of course, true crime podcast listener. So I've like listened to everyone that I can think of. And then it was just um, not only do I like to listen, but I like to read a lot of true crime. Mm -hmm. And I was like, read a lot of like cases. And especially as a member of the queer community, I always like to read up on cases involving queer people. And a lot Mm -hmm. of them... uh, a lot of podcasts wouldn't like cover like I'd read about it and be like I want to hear someone like talk about this more and so I'd like look it up sure. and it'd be like a lot of the cases would be like no one's done an episode on this yet and so um you know I thought about like maybe like writing into my favorite podcast or something like that and I was like well I think it'd be interesting to get like a queer perspective on queer true crime mm-hmm. cases and of course like the niche thing comes from like you gotta carve out your niche like you said like mm-hmm. Normally, it's focused around one thing, and that's usually how you get people to, you know, tune in and listen. And so we're like, well, I think there's been a couple of true crime podcasts that have focused specifically on uh, LGBT plus crimes, but I don't think there's there hasn't been one where it's kind of like our dynamic because I have a Mm co-host named Brad, and we kind of like bounce off each other. Like he's more he's not as into true crime as I am, Mm. and he does not know hardly any of the stories we cover so it's really cool to be able to like talk to him like he's one of the audience members and so i do get his reaction like live to like certain things and stuff like that and so it really helps keep the flow of the the case going and so i just um originally it started out as uh of course just a queer true crime podcast but now it's kind of morphed into this part true crime, part queer history. Mm. And so I kind of, and I like that aspect where we kind of go into like the historical, like social and political climate surrounding the queer community at the time of the case. And like, did that affect how the case was handled back then or how the investigators did it? And so I think that offers a really unique spin on things. Yeah, no, for sure. And I and I love the way you guys handle that for sure. And I also, you know, again, as another member of the LGBTQ plus community, right? Like I, you know, notice so many times that, you know, that first off, you know, like a lot of times, like you were talking about or alluding to there, like the investigation, you know, can often, you know, like be affected by whether or not the, by the person's sexual orientation, which is horrible, but it's, you know, a reality for, for, you know, members of our community. And, you know, also too, you know, along those same notes, um, you know, I know so many times when like you know when you know straight people right you know straight podcast hosts are, are covering these um these kinds of crimes like they don't fully get it right because they don't you know fully they 
they're not a member of the community. I mean, you right. can't get it, right? Yeah. And so, like, I, you know, it's just it's just very subtle things that, like, you know, may just seem, you know, probably things that we're going to get into in this very case that we're talking about today um, that, you know, it just seems so out of this world for people who don't identify as LGBT. But, you know, for people in the LGBT community, it's like, yeah, okay. And, you know, so it's, I, I feel like it's really important to have that perspective when you're covering these kinds mm-hmm. of cases. Um, and it's impossible for one or two people to have, you know, a perspective on every single case that they cover, of course. But it's cool that you guys have that perspective in that. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons we wanted to keep it niche because, like, that's one thing we can offer our uh, point of view on because a lot of the times there is, like you said, those subtle things. Like, people may be like, well, why? is it like that? Why did this happen? Or why do they act like that? Mm. It's like, well, you have to understand from a point of view from like a a minority group, like back in that time, that's how things were. That's how you acted or that's what you had to do in order to not be outed or, you know, queer Mm -hmm. bash or something like that. And so I really think it provides a, a good like understanding. Like you understand like where the victims are coming from or like how people reacted at the time, stuff like that. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I, and I love the way you guys are going with that. Um, with that note, with that being said though, I do think, um, that we should celebrate that idea with some wine. Um, so let's get there because everyone knows that that's my favorite part of the, of the podcast. I love hearing the pop. So let's talk about that. So this week we are drinking Noah Rivers Pinot Noir. It has a big floral nose of dark cherry, fig, and Asian spice. It also has notes of blackberry, mint, orange, pico tea, and pencil shavings. And pencil, okay, pencil Pint. shavings. It has medium body flavors of dark cherry cola, red raspberry cola, and tea, and finishes with red plums and baker's chocolate i when i wrote that out i really did not did not think twice about pencil shavings i have questions i mean i'm not against it if it (laughs) tastes good i'll do it i'll drink it hey you know what it must right because it was like right up on the top of the shelf right so we're gonna find out how pencil shavings taste in a wine um so yeah this is gonna be real interesting but i also do have to uh, have to know because one of the things that i um reach out why i why you guys got my attention was because i know you guys are you know beer yeah podcast at the same time right and so that's kind of that's obviously my niche you know or you know i'm not a huge beer gal but i do you know but like you know drinking talk about these kinds of things so um are you guys strictly beer you know in in you know recreationally speaking or are you guys like do you guys branch out at all so um it's funny because, you know, like the name Beers with Queers, and we do drink beer from time to time, but it's not like something mm-hmm. we're like extreme. Oh. <laughs> it's not like our biggest like alcoholic passion, I want to say. If I had to choose one, it'd probably be wine. <laughs> okay, cool. You're speaking my language. Yeah. Already. We can definitely still be friends for sure. But I was like, you know, wine with queers doesn't sound as good as beers with queers. Fair. <laughs> and so Very like um, we do drink beer and stuff like that, but also sometimes we just have like water. <laughs> Or something, you know, depending on what it is. But it's true. It's more of it was like the like it's more about the idea of like sitting with a friend or someone and having a relaxing beverage, no matter what that is. And then just, uh, you know, talking about different true crime cases. Yeah. Well, you know, and for, you know, maybe for the Beers with Curious listeners who are listening to this episode or this podcast for the first time, the idea of my podcast came from, you know, I was literally sitting on my couch pretty much every week, you know, listening to my favorite true crime podcast, drinking a glass of wine. And I was like, this, I can't be the only one doing this, right? <laughs> and so uh, that's where this, where Crime Over Wine was born. Um, so same idea. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's what I can promise you, you know, 50%, I would say, you know, probably the other half 
stuff or like commuting, right? Um, but 50% of my listeners are doing just that. And so, um, you know, I love the community building part of this whole thing. And so, um, yeah. So with that being said, cheers to you, Jordy. Cheers. So appreciate you for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Any excuse to drink wine, so... I am right there with you for sure. And I was going to say, so when you were talking about, you know, oh, sometimes we just like drink water, you know, on the podcast. Um, That's not me. I am exclusively drinking wine on this podcast just in case anyone is sitting at home wondering, oh, no, no, no. Like, there's no way he was, he's actually drunk, getting drunk. No, I'm actually getting drunk talking about this. The only way I'm going to be able to talk through these cases, specifically the one we're talking about this week, Jordy. So... You want to get there because I know we have a lot to talk about. I do want to get there because I've like I've heard the case and stuff like that, and I think I've heard a few stories about it. But like, it's been yeah. a while. But I just know it's a a pretty knucking futs case. So yeah, oh yeah, big time. I like that knucking futs. I'm gonna <laughs> use that more often. Well, you know, this week I want to tell you, you know, about the craziest true crime story I've heard by far by a long shot. I mean, head scratching doesn't even begin to describe this. This is probably the most mind-blowing case, and I promise you, you are going to want to hear every single detail and are going to be holding on to every single second of this case. So hold on tight. This week, I want to tell you all about Robert Wan and the mystery on Swan Street. On the morning of August 2nd, 2006, Robert Wan left his home in Fairfax County, Virginia with his wife Catherine to go to work. They both commuted to D.C. by train every single day. Robert worked as general counsel for Radio Free Asia, a government-funded nonprofit news organization, but for audience specifically in Asia and the Asian community. Robert had worked his whole life to become a lawyer. He was 32 in 2006, but more than a decade earlier, his career started at the College of William and Mary, where he studied pre-law and made some friends too. Namely, he became really close with a classmate named Joseph Price. Joseph was also on track to become a lawyer of some kind. The two became pals, drinking buddies, etc. As Robert and Kathy arrived in D.C. the morning of August 2nd, 2006, the couple kissed and departed, knowing that Robert was going to have to work late that night. And as that late night came, Robert decided that he was not going to take the train back to his home across the Potomac, but instead he was going to spend the night at Joseph's place, which Robert had never done before, but he was close enough with Joseph to make this kind of ask. It's not totally clear what time Robert arrived to Joseph's townhome in Dupont. Circle, but we do know that Robert called Joseph around 10.30 that night, presumably to confirm that he could still spend the night, and then Robert got into a taxi and went to Joseph's. Now, Joseph's home was only a mile from Robert's office, and based on mapping, GPS, etc., it's presumed that he arrived at Joseph's house about 10 minutes later. I think that's the thing that uh, gets me about this case that like is so crazy to me, is the fact that there was no way it could have been that premeditated or anything mm. like that because you know it's like this is like a last minute decision by him to right. spend the night with a friend and stuff like that so it's not like someone could have been planning this for weeks or days even yeah. or even hours honestly and so like right. the fact that there was such a little time frame between the time that 
he got there like and had all this planned is part of the mm-hmm. like bewildering aspects to me. Yeah. Well, yeah. And we're going to get to exactly what Jordy's alluding to. Right. But like kind of what you're talking about here is like it's so random. Right. But like so specific because it's ne- he's never done this before. So it's not like he did this every Tuesday. Right. So it's like, it, yeah. So it's it's crazy. So for sure, we're definitely going to talk all about that. A whole <laughs> lot more about that for sure, Jody, Jordy. So Joseph was not alone. No, Robert knew very well that Joseph was not only an openly gay man, but that he was also in a polyamorous relationship. He lived with two other men, Victor Saborski, who Joseph had been with for about six years, and Dylan Ward, who Joseph had been with for about three years. The four guys hung for a little bit, drank some wine, before Robert decides that he was going to take a shower and head to sleep in their guest bedroom. And just a little while later, Joseph, Victor, and Dylan all decide to hit the hay too. Now, we're about to skip around a bit here, so everyone hold on tight. And But the reason we're going to do that is because it's really not clear what happens in the next hour. But what we do know is that at 11.49 at night, Victor calls 911. D.C. emergency 911, operator 6752. Do you need police, fire, or ambulance? What's wrong, ma'am? We had someone that was in our house, evidently, and they stabbed somebody. Okay, somebody's inside the house now? I don't know. We heard... Are they bleeding? You see someone yes. bleeding? Someone is bleeding in our house. Okay, where's they bleeding from? Uh, I think he was... I think in the stomach. In the stomach? Is he cautious? Uh, Calm down for me. I'm going to send some help, okay? Female or male? It's a male. He's a friend of ours. He was spent, he was spending the night with us. Okay, and who was the person that stabbed him? Do you know? Is he, is, is he conscious? We need an ambulance. Ma'am, listen no, to me. He's not conscious. He's not conscious at all? No. We need someone right now. Is he breathing? Listen, is he... listen to me. Calm down. I'm going to help you, okay? Is he breathing? I'm upstairs, and he's downstairs. I don't know. Okay, who's downstairs with him? My partner is downstairs with him right now. He told me to go upstairs and call the police immediately. Okay, who's the person? Okay, I'm sending paramedics and the police. Okay, who's the person that stabbed him? I don't know. We think it's somebody with an intruder in the house. We heard the chime of the door. And it's 15, ma'am, calm down. 1509 Swan Street, Northwest. Am I correct? Yes, it is. The person that stabbed him, is he still in the home? I don't know. We got help in route, okay? Pardon me? We have help in route. Thank you. They're here. They are there route to you now. Send the police and the paramedics, okay, to assist. Okay, what I need you to do is go downstairs, okay? The place where, wherever he was stabbed at, I need you to get a dry cloth, okay? And just apply pressure to that area. If he was wherever he was stabbed at on his body, I need you to take a towel downstairs while you're waiting for the paramedics to arrive and just apply pressure. Even if the rag or towel is saturated with blood, just get another towel and put it on top, but never lift the first towel off the area. Hold it on. Once it gets filled up with blood, just put another towel on top of that and just apply pressure until the paramedics arrive. Yes. 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 In the heart? Okay. Is he breathing? 
We have help him right now, okay? You don't know who it was? Okay, is he breathing? Okay, we have help in route, ma'am, okay? We do have help in route. Okay, just go down there and try to tell your husband or your other um, the other half to just try to keep him calm and talk to him, okay? Keep him calm and talk to him until someone gets there. Okay. And at the same time, get a dry cloth and just hold it right there in the area. My partner's holding the okay, holding it, it, it on him. Okay, and once it gets saturated with blood, then I'm get another one. Go get another towel so you can apply it on top of that one once it gets sealed up with blood. Okay, we need well, we need you to apply pressure on that area. He is applying pressure right Okay, just hold it there until the paramedics get there. They should be pulling up any moment. If they're already en route to your location, you don't know who did this. We have no idea who did this. Is the door open so they can get in? We don't know how they got in. Okay, well, I'm asking you now, is the door open so the paramedics can get in once they get here? What? Sorry. What were you saying? Is the door open so they can get in? Is the okay. door open so the so the paramedics can get in the home? I'm going to go down. Is this a private home or apartment? It's, it's a home. It's a home. It's 1509 Swan Street Northwest. The person had one of our knives. The person that stabbed him ran out the door with a knife? I, I think so. Uh, okay, anybody get any type of description of the person that came in the home? I have no idea. We have no description. We heard we heard the chime and and we heard the scream from our friends. Okay. And so we came running downstairs. We ran in. So you both was upstairs and your friend was downstairs? Yes. You heard the door open and then you heard the scream? We didn't. I didn't hear the door open until after the screen, and then we ran down the stairs and we heard, we are, we have an alarm, and so the chime went off. Okay. Is the ambulance, we really need the ambulance. Okay, they in route, they in route now, ma'am. Go to the door, they should be pulling up any moment, okay? I'm afraid to go downstairs. Okay, the person who's downstairs was the person that was assaulted. No, we're in the, we're on the second floor. Okay, so somebody need to go to says open the door for the paramedics. You're not sure if that person's still in the home or not. I have no idea. Okay, we have paramedics in route, okay? What time is it? What time is it at the moment? Yes. 23.54. It's 11.54, ma'am. 11.54. Yes. I mean... I'll stay on the line with you. I will stay on the line until somebody gets here, okay? I won't hang up. We need them right now. I'm not hanging up, but we need, we need help now. Okay, they're in route, ma'am. They are in route. <laughs> Let me know when you hear the paramedics. Can you look out the window and see if you hear them coming? I'm, I'm looking out the window and I see nothing. I see nobody. Okay, it seems like forever, but they are en route, ma'am. They're coming. Here they are. Here they are. They're there. <laughs> I'm going downstairs. Okay. I'll stand in line with you till you open the door for the paramedics, okay? <laughs> We have someone with stabbed throughout our second floor. <laughs> Ma'am. No, it's really an emergency. I mean he maybe he's sorry. <laughs> Ma'am, it's gonna be okay. <laughs>
Okay, so, Jordy, I have, like, so many thoughts raised in the head right now. I want to hear what you have to say, though, first. It's always weird hearing, like, the 911 calls in case, especially after, like, so soon after it happened. Mm-hmm. But, like, right off the bat, one, it was really weird that she kept referring to him as ma'am. Yeah. That was the very first thing. Been there, though. Uh, been there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we've all been there, yeah. queer people. But, um, and just the... The weird things, like he's so sure somebody was in the house mm-hmm. and stuff like that. It's always weird little things that, like, they seem to go out of their way to mention. Yeah. And of course, we all re- we all react differently to trauma, especially that kind of trauma. But it's interesting. Well, and to you know harp on that a little bit more too, right? Because when you when you talk about like you know going out of their way to mentioning this to mention this kind of stuff, right? Like, like to the point of like the operator says, okay, well, like is the door open or something like that? And he responds um, saying, oh, like, I don't know how he got into the house. I don't know how he got into the house. And when like she was talking about like, is the door open so that way paramedics can come in, Mm -hmm. which like, again, like crazy situation, lot going on. So like, like, okay, misunderstanding. Like we, like, I get that too. But, but to that point, like he kept bringing it back up, right? Like he kept, you know, making sure to say, like intruder burglar like whoever like broke into the house yep so exactly and that's something i think like again as someone that listened to like used to watch all those true crime shows even like growing up Mm -hmm. and stuff like that like i learned from all the investigator sayings like when they keep mentioning and harping on very specific details it starts to sound a little staged or set up kind of because it's like they've ran through the the script in their head like it was an intruder they did this uh we don't have to worry about how they got in. Mm-hmm. Like, that makes it too complicated. Just stick with it was an intruder. It's the investigator's yeah. job to figure out the rest. And yeah, and that reminds me of the um, of the Michael Peterson, Kathleen Peterson case, right? Of like because mm-hmm. we covered that um, back on episode nineteen of this podcast, um, where Kathleen, you know, again fell down the stairs, like allegedly fell down the stairs, and Michael, um, you know, kept you know, like bringing that back up into the conversation, right. Of like, Mm -hmm. you know, like she felt like, like that was the narrative that he clearly wanted to get across here. And like, he wanted, and like the calls kind of give me similar vibes again. Like I know, like this all in hindsight right but like right. it gives me similar vibes in terms of like the very hysterical like crying you know kind of like like situation going on here um like and and it sounds very believable to me right like i'm listening to this and i'm like okay like the like the cries the sobs sound legit right like i have like like just listening to that alone i have no reason to think like anything nefarious is going on right like at first glance like hearing it like that does sound like someone that's just like stumbled upon this horrific crime mm-hmm. and like they're like of course freaking out and sobbing and stuff like that i think any person would be and so at first glance yeah it seems like maybe like this was a horrible like incident involving an intruder because mm-hmm. sounds believable right at first at first for sure and let's like recap you know again so like what like the timeline here right so so robert arrives at the house around 11 uh, around 10 30 it's now 1150 ish right that like all this is happening mm-hmm. um and so so an hour later and less than an hour and a half later about like somewhere around there um is when this 911 call is placed is when, is when robert is stabbed to death right and so um like and so let's let's kind of recap that call a little bit in terms of just like the the mechanics of this thing so the call the operator instructs 
Victor to to get a towel and put the put the towel on on Robert to try to hold to try to um like cover the wound right like that yeah like stop very, the bleeding stop the bleeding right so very like again normal instructions here mm-hmm. important we're going to talk about why that's important a little bit later on but so just keep that keep all that in mind I just want to flag that for everybody um and then also too so so the so the screen that they're talking about here right that the Victor's talking about and he kind of detail he kind of says two different stories and it might have been very subtle but he he it's two different you know situation uh, like occurrences here the first time he says it he says that he heard the chime and then literally mm-hmm. then a little bit later on then he heard a scream and then uh, like a minute later or so she acts you know again um okay well what happened and then he says oh i heard the scream and then i heard the chime mm-hmm. right so it was almost again maybe that was just you know a slip of the tongue but feels a little Freudian to me. Like, I don't know. It just, it feels like you're just like, oh no, I didn't say that right the first time. I need to make sure I say it right the second time. That's where how I take that. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things that's like, so like, can be especially frustrating for investigators because you can mm-hmm. look at it from both perspectives. Right. You know, someone did, if like, you know, they really did just stumble upon this horrific crime, of course they're going to be scatterbrained and stuff like sure. that. And so like mixing up something like that is easily explained. Like, well, I mean, like they're like, Mine's going a million miles per hour. Right. But then also you can look at it from the perspective like, well, they were telling their story and then they right. made a little slip up. And so then they try to retcon it immediately after. Sure. So they can be like, actually, that's not what I said. Yeah. I said or this. Not what I meant to say. Yeah. yeah not what right. I meant to say. Yeah. And so exactly. it's one of those like, I don't know. It's, yeah. Could be either or. It could be either or. Well, let's pick right back up into where we're at in this whole debacle situation madness. Because just five minutes after the call was placed into 911, and you can almost kind of hear this happening during the call, um, paramedics arrive on scene and they say the home is just off to them. When they arrive, a man, Victor, greets them at the front door, freshly showered and in a clean white robe. Like, literally, his hair is still wet. And he's oddly calm, according to them. The paramedics enter the home and are guided upstairs where they're greeted with another man. Again, freshly showered and in a clean white robe. That man is Dylan, and he's staring straight ahead. And when his gaze is eventually broken by the paramedics, he turns to them and backs into the bedroom at the top of the stairs without saying a single word. Okay, yeah, that's uh, already right off the bat. That would, um, the vibes are way off. Bad vibes everywhere. Because especially if you look freshly showered right after a murder, I don't think that's, you know, it's one thing to be scatterbrained and, like, crying, but, like, if your first thought after discovering your friend's been murdered is, is to let's take a shower, take a yeah. Fr- yeah, let's take a fresh shower real quick. We gotta look yeah. good when the paramedics show up, right, or something like that. <laughs> right. <And> so it's <laughs> right. Well, and too, like, like you know, these like paramedics, especially in DC, I would imagine, right, have seen it all, right, and so they mm-hmm. know, like, when their when their instincts are off, like when their gut feeling is just a little bit off. Like, I trust them more than anybody else. Like, they know what it what these type of situations should feel like for them, and this yeah. just ain't it. Yeah, like, so, like, I mean, especially, like you said, D.C., it's, like, been there, done that. Right. And so if they're saying everything's off, believe them 100%. 100%. Well, at this point, paramedics say the hair on the back of their necks is all the way up. They turn 180 degrees to the guest bedroom where they can see Robert Wan on a sofa bed. As they walk toward the bedroom, they see Joseph on the floor of the bedroom. Again, 
freshly showered, and in a clean white robe. And Robert is clearly deceased with three stab wounds to his chest. And as odd as this whole environment is seeming to them, there's something else that is just even more odd, like far more odd than anything they've seen so far or anything they'll see moving forward. There's Robert dead with gaping stab wounds in his chest. But where is all of the blood? Get ready for that big test with Study.com. Study.com offers learning materials and test prep, even LSAT study prep guides for all of my legal nerds listening. Unfortunately, there aren't any wine study guides, and believe me, I did check. Listeners can get 30% off their first three months of any subscription level using the promo code CRIMEOVERWINE. Again, that's promo code CRIMEOVERWINE, no spaces, for 30% off your first three months at Study.com. Learn faster, stay motivated, study smarter with our sponsor, Study.com. Paramedics examine Robert and don't find blood anywhere, or at least not nearly as much as they would have expected to find a stabbing victim. There really wasn't much on Robert's William and Mary shirt that he was wearing, and there was just a small amount of blood on the bedsheets that Robert was sleeping on. As for that towel that dispatchers told Victor to use on Robert's wounds, they did find some blood on that, but again, not nearly as much as they would have had expected. Again, like you said, right off the bat, Bob's are off if i'm a stabbing victim i'm thinking especially three stab wounds i'm thinking blood everywhere because it's blood it's everywhere. a violent crime yeah. and it's a personal crime especially so i'm thinking like blood right. on the walls and the bed sheets and stuff like that and then especially mm-hmm. when there's a stabbing victim my first thought is like where's the possible murder weapon like did they find it right <laughs> like that's the biggest thing because sometimes a lot of the times it could be like they use the knife that's at the location or something like that, especially if it's a house. Right. Yeah, you would think so. So and so and to be clear, again, going back to this towel that we're talking about, like if the if the operator is telling him to like press it on the wounds to stop the bleeding, like and you should like go look up pictures of this towel, everybody, like uh, like like who's listening to this at home because there are like splotches, like it's not like I expect like a blood like three stab wounds, like, like a blood soaked towel and like. It's not nearly that. And especially if, like, you know, this is your dear friend, like, when they tell you to press a towel on their wounds, you're going to be, like, you know, pressing on a wound. So I would imagine right. even more blood because you're pressing so much on their chest. Because, like, I used to actually work in a operating room. And so, you know, I've seen stab victims before, and it's it can get really bloody, especially when you're trying to stop the bleeding. Right. And so, like, the more you push on it, the more blood that's just going to come out. And so the fact that there's, like, mm-hmm. three little blotches really suggests that more it kind of sounds like they didn't push it on it until after he was already well dead at least to me because by the time the blood can like settle and stuff so you're not going to get as much out when you push on it and Mm -hmm. so that's that was my first thought from seeing that yeah right yeah, I mean, again, or didn't do or it didn't at do all, it at all and yeah. just like you know, yeah, and just like blotted it on there to like, like which doesn't see really we did it, yeah, seem yeah, right. Well, but like doesn't really seem all that smart at all no. because like, well, anyways. <laughs> um, but as for your question though, Jordy, about um about the murder weapon though, they did find a knife on the nightstand, and Joseph tells first responders that he found the knife laying on top of Robert's chest, and when he found him, he took the knife and put it on the nightstand out of like instinct, I guess. I would call, if I were the paramedics, I would call horseshit on that immediately. (laughs) That's not my first instinct, yeah. And so now your prints are conveniently on the knife that was just on your murdered friend's 
body and so you just yeah. nonchalantly picked it up and was the knife bloody yeah. i'm like if it wasn't then i'm like mm. so not no not really actually again to answer that question but also like let's keep in mind like joseph's a lawyer especially if he is like a lawyer and he knows all this thing mm-hmm. i think he may know to like can accidentally contaminate the crime scene as much as right. possible and so it's like sure. it sounds stupid because like touching the knife that just killed your friend but again it goes back to like the 911 call he can be like well i didn't know at the time and like this is what right. i originally told people like i did pick it up out of instinct and so they can like kind of circle back to that like if they're like well your prints are on the knife sure well when police arrive they pull joseph victor and dylan aside and start asking them about what happened and immediately there's like a very odd power dynamic going on here joseph is telling the entire story and every time dylan starts to say something Joseph just stares him down, and Dylan immediately just stops talking, and Joseph picks it right back up again. Again, going back to that, like the 911 call, it kind of seems staged and rehearsed, and it just it seems phony, like phoned in almost. And so yeah. it's um it's more of an acting challenge than a <laughs> yeah. Well, but again, like like you know, go, again going back to like Joseph's a lawyer, and so like he like you know in any situation, right? Like even if they're totally innocent, like I could see like again playing devil's advocate here of like they like you know find themselves in the situation like it could very well be that they end up being suspects i'm sure they you know even if they did absolutely nothing wrong i'm sure they would have been suspects at some point um and so but like from like like joseph like coming across like immediately you know just trying to pull the whole narrative together right and and you know because he probably knows more than than the other two because of his experience and so it makes sense on that front but at the same time like in this type of environment like you would think that like it would just involve everybody just kind of like piecing together their story as much as you possibly can and so it just feels off i suppose right i get what you're saying like it's kind of like you know don't talk to the police unless your lawyer is present type of situation sure and stuff like a lawyer yeah Yeah. and so i can i completely understand that point of view like not wanting to get in trouble or anything like that if you do become a suspect but then again like you said at the same time like you're supposed to be like dear friend was just brutally Mm -hmm. murdered in your home so i would want everyone to like put everything to know everything like between all of us and so again it's that thing where it can go either way depending on how you look at it but i do want to know like you know like what exactly did they say happened because that's the biggest thing (laughs) oh that is the biggest thing and they are sticking to the story that someone had broken into the townhome and killed robert in the middle of the night and that they were all awoken by what they called a low scream in the middle of the night but something about this just did not seem right at all again not only was this whole entire scene just not adding up to investigators but a break-in just did not seem like the right answer here right away. Not only were these three men setting off like every alarm bell in the book, but Robert seemed to be freshly cleaned too. Again, no blood anywhere. So in order for us to believe that an intruder was responsible for Robert's death, we are also to believe that this intruder went up these stairs past Dylan's room, which was again, right at the top of the stairs, straight to Robert's room, killed him, showered off his body, changed the sheets, and left without anyone else in the house hearing a thing more than a low scream and not only that like all that like again like you said it sounds far-fetched 
to believe the intruder like specifically target him and then had the time to clean the body. Mm-hmm. But also the fact that all this happened in like the span of what, an hour? An hour, yeah, right. <laughs> and so that's what I keep coming back to, especially like from the time he set out to like called up Joseph to be like, hey, can you can I spend the night here at your place or whatever, all the way up until his murdered body is found freshly cleaned. And that literally is in the span of a couple of hours, like from the time right. he called Joseph to the time all this happened. And so it's just wild how all these strange series of events are supposed to have happened to him at once. Yeah. And yeah, I'm like calling bullshit on yeah. some things. Well, a little bit. And like, again, like all, like all of that happening, like the one night that this guy is here, right? Like, and mm-hmm. like, again, like walked right past like all of the opportunities, like, uh, cause kind of going back to what you're talking about before, right? Like if like, it, like, let's say this is like a, you know, a, you know, very, you know, well thought out situation, right. Of like an intruder, you know, trying to get into these like, you know, seemingly wealthy, you know, guys house or maybe like whatever it is. Um, like it would make more sense. You would think that they would know, right. That like, it was some that, you know, to, to go to the people who actually lived there and wouldn't even think twice to go into the guest bedroom. Right. If this is as well thought out, you know, as it seems to be right. If it is indeed an intruder. Um, so it just, it like, like coincidental as heck that it's just, you know, the one night that it's, that it's, this dude is at their home. Um, everyone else is totally unharmed practically doesn't know a thing and this guy is just like gone into the night again all within an, within an hour and a half Ooh, i don't know yeah like make it make sense honestly make especially the sense. fact that, that like there's three other men in the house and none of them hear a thing like literally anything sure um and also the fact like what intruder is going to break into a house with four grown men mm-hmm. and like murder one and then leave without taking anything right and like like you said, it couldn't honestly be anyone that was personally like targeting Robert because this was a last minute thing. So how would they have known his schedule or anything like that? Because this was like a right. last minute like detour from what he normally does. And so it's just there's too many coincidences for this mm-hmm. to be even a little bit plausible yeah. for me at least right now. yeah well and like coincidences but like 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 necessary coincidences like yeah like, like it, how convenient like, right very very convenient like it, like all of these coincidences had to have like lined up perfectly mm-hmm. in order for this like story to make any sort of sense but you know the three men that were sticking to this story and they said that although the front door was locked they aren't sure the back door was so they think it's most likely that the intruder scaled a back fence and entered in that way but again, this isn't really feeling right to investigators. They look through the backyard and there is, in fact, a layer of dust that is completely undisturbed along the fence and cobwebs all around the fence, too, that are like totally intact. You know, that they just don't that just does not point to anyone climbing over this fence at all. So their alarm bells are all the way off. But investigators just have some more questions for Joseph, Victor, and Dylan, and so they take them down to the precinct to ask them some more questions, and they all tell pretty much the same story. Now, this is some important context, but Joseph and Victor have their own separate bedroom from Dylan, and their bedroom is actually on the third floor of this townhome, so a floor above Dylan and this guest bedroom. So, they all tell police that they were fast asleep in their respective bedrooms when they heard a noise that woke them up 
and went downstairs to find Robert dead in their guest bedroom, and they called 911 at this point. And as investigators begin to question the three men, they are becoming more and more obvious that they are simply not buying their story and are considering all three of them suspects. In their interrogation, bits of which are shown in Peacock's docuseries, Who Killed Robert Wan, investigators began this really targeted line of questioning that, in my opinion, either comes from some level of ignorance or possibly a place of really trying to get under these guys' skins. They start asking about their sexuality and their relationship with Robert, and they ask him if they were ever attracted to Robert and ask what a straight married guy would be doing staying over at three gay guys' house. They even accuse them of trying to, quote, gay him up. There is even this really potent line directly from the interrogation video, and Jordy, I'm hoping that you're going to be able to read that for us. Yeah, absolutely. I've got three homosexuals in a house, and I've got one straight guy. What's he doing over there? I think we were all drinking wine. You know what's going to happen tonight. You're coming to Jesus tonight. That's what's going on. And that's a thing, too. Like, when I the little bit I have heard of this case and stuff like that is one thing I always like stuck on was the fact these investigators did harp on the fact like they were gay, polyamorous, sure. mm-hmm. and that a straight guy was at a bunch of gay guys' house. And it's something I've seen a lot online too, where they're like, you know, what was he doing there? Like he must have mm-hmm. been there to like for some sexual relationship or something like that. And it always frustrates me because I'm like, you know, it is very much possible and it's actually really common for straight men to be friends with gay guys not Mm. everything has to be sexualized and stuff like that and so i mean like like to jump to that conclusion and like you said it may be it was just to try to get under the the three men's skin but at the same time it's also kind of like you know you're assuming things about a dead man that he's not here to defend himself against and so it's one of those things i think was in really bad taste to like kind of put out there into the the American or the, like the consciousness of the everyone to be like, yeah. well, what if he was gay and stuff like that? And it's like, well, also like he doesn't have to be gay to spend a day at like mm-hmm. a, not at his best friend's house who just so happens to be gay and in a triad relationship. Cause you know, like I have plenty of straight male friends and stuff like that and there's nothing nefarious yeah. going on about it. And so that's right. a part that I You're not trying me. to kill them to be clear, just to be No. Okay. Clear okay. I'm not trying to kill them or anything else. I just want their company. Okay, cool. We'll just making <laughs> sure. Um but yeah, you know, but to be to that point though, like the fact that they are gay and in this like try like polyamorous relationship has nothing to do with whether or not they have murdered this mm-hmm. guy at this point, right? Like like if this is really in their head. I don't know. And like I do have to imagine that, you know, they probably have like a like a good idea of kind of what goes on at this point and so like my like like preserving my like faith in humanity like I have to imagine that this is the investigator just trying to like get at them and trying to like get them to crack and like trying to get him angry like Joseph seems like that kind of dude to just like you know eventually just like you know like implode right of like in anger if like you get him mad enough so like maybe that's what he was trying to do i have to imagine this what he was trying to do you know so that way i'm not super insulted that i have to imagine this that's what he's trying to do but (laughs) that that's kind of where i'm at with that that's the only place i can land 
Um, you know, all three of them, though, maintained that Robert was totally straight and that they were all just friends with him. And Joseph even says that Robert wasn't even his type, even if he was gay. And it was during this hours-long interrogation that police start to get a really interesting perspective into this whole polyamorous relationship. You see, what police thought was a love triangle of sorts was more like two individual relationships. Joseph was in a relationship with Victor and Dylan, but that didn't necessarily mean that Dylan and Victor were in a relationship together. Okay, like, I I can see where, like, they originally thought, well, all three of them were together and stuff like that. But I think maybe that just comes from maybe them not understanding, you know, polyamorous relationships can mean all Mm -hmm. sorts of things. Like, they all don't have three have to be in a relationship together. Like, it could be two or three different relationships or stuff like that. And so I guess like like right now, I think they may be looking at it suspiciously, but I guess like to me, like understanding a little bit of the poly community, I'm like, well, I mean, that doesn't honestly seem too weird to me. Right. Yeah. Kind of what we were talking about before about, you know, you really have to be in this community to like really understand like fully. Um, I will say it is kind of important. It becomes very important later on this, like, you know, very, this detail. So keep that in mind for sure. But, you know, well, when all three men gave more or less the same story that night, they left refusing to comment any further on the case than they already had. Dylan, however, is taken down to an FBI office to be given a polygraph test. In this test, he is asked two questions. Did you kill Robert Wan? And do you know who killed Robert Wan? And police say that his results come back with deception indicated. And in the world of police and polygraph tests, that is considered a big, fat failure. I know, like, they love to use polygraph tests and stuff like that. But going back to, like, listening to true crime podcasts and stuff like that, one number one rule I've always learned is you never... Ever, ever, ever agree to a polygraph test because if it comes back that you're telling the truth, they're going to say, oh, well, you know, that's junk science. But then if it comes back that you failed, they're going to say, see, he failed. He's guilty. Right. And so it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. So you might as well just yeah. not do it and at all. And if you refuse, then you look extra guilty too, right? You're guilty you know, too. That, yeah. Yeah. Like, listen, that is like, if you, like, I've talked about this before on this podcast, do not take the polygraph test, even Mm-mm. if they're threatening to shoot you out back to ta- if you if, if, if you don't. Um, it's better you know, not to take it at all than yeah. to take it and fail it. And now you Big look time. twice as guilty. <laughs> Big time. Yeah. I will say too, because again, this is like laid out pretty well in like the, the Peacock docuseries, which I have highly recommend by the way um but the um like the i guess the reason that they like singled out dylan and all this is because like based on this dynamic they figured out that he was like the weak link um like joseph was Mm -hmm. clearly in charge victor you know looked however victor looked but like dylan looked like he was about to crack um and so Mm -hmm. they were like let's like let's single him out let's separate him from the rest of the the pack and we're gonna you know try to get him on this like pressure him on this polygraph test and so that's Mm -hmm. really good um you know context i think also according to that docuseries on peacock joseph returns just a few minutes later after leaving the interrogation room and when he comes back he says something really interesting he realizes that what he had told police originally about what happened wasn't entirely true if you remember joseph originally told police that he had found the knife resting on top of robert's chest but when he comes back he says that he had actually pulled the knife directly out of his chest and then rested it on the nightstand okay first of all it's one thing to pull it off the dead man's body but to pull it out right of him you know is the difference. another thing 
Yeah. yeah, and especially can... if you're a lawyer, I think you know, like, yeah, not to, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. Yeah, well, and so I guess, and here's like putting myself in his mind, right? Of like, and like again, go look up pictures of this knife. Like, we're gonna link to all of this evidence, like, in our on our website and in our show notes, so you'll be able to see it. Um, but like the knife is like, it does not look like it was just used to stab someone at all. It like it looks like there's like spots of blood on it. Like, okay. So, like, maybe that's where he's coming from of, like, like oh, well, actually, like, I feel the need to say that the knife, like, I actually pulled the knife out of his chest because there's blood on it. But to me, that's, like, even more ridiculous to, to even imagine because, like, there's not enough blood for it to have been pulled directly out of his chest. Like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, I don't really... I don't, I don't get that, but, like, and again, like, like, sure, like, this is a very emotional night for all of them, right? Like, like, to put, to give them credit, I suppose. So, like, I guess I could see a world where it's just, like, like, wait, no, 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 I thought this is what happened, but actually, like, now that I think about it more, like, now that the, the haze has been lifted, Mm -hmm. it, I actually, like, this is what happened, but I'm still just not buying it at all. No, especially if, like, I guess it's, I know it's really frustrating for investigators because like you do have all that like the story doesn't make sense now he's saying he pulled the knife directly out but the knife doesn't look like it was used really to stab someone Mm -hmm. and stuff like that but then again it's like how can you really prove that that didn't happen like you can't prove it didn't but you can't prove that it did and so it's just like that one of those details where you're like stuck in the middle and like you can't yeah move one way or the other yeah well and how do you do that right like there's there i mean besides just like pure logic right that like any of us could could use like like how do you scientifically prove to a judge and jury that this is how this actually happened well police realize that they aren't going to get much out of joseph victor and dylan that makes a lot of sense and so the only thing that would give them the answers they need is in the home on swan street Police start scraping through every inch of Swan Street and, again, are just not seeing the obvious signs of a break-in as much as the three men who live there are leading them to believe. And they're not even just searching the home. Police even execute a search warrant at Joseph's legal office, but I never read anything that suggested that they found anything substantial from that search either. They ended up spending three weeks examining the home on Swan Street in detail, removing flooring, pieces of walls, a chunk of the staircase, the wash machine and sink traps. They even brought in cadaver dogs to smell throughout the home and the cadaver dogs end up hitting on two spots in the home and signaling for blood that was on the lint trap in the dryer and on a drain on the patio. Okay, so I know what I think that means to me, (laughs) which is if they look Mm -hmm. freshly showered on the knot, of the murder and so does Robert and now pl- the cadaver dogs are mm-hmm. hitting on blood in the lint trap and a drain outside. Right. Obviously like all three of these dudes took the time to wash themselves and Robert of any evidence, but also, you know, like what do the police think may that may have proven if anything. Well, these were odd spots for the dogs to pick up blood scents, of course, and so their theory was that whoever killed Robert likely washed Mm -hmm. their clothes and the sheets in the laundry, which would logically lead to a blood scent in the lint trap, right? And they also believe the perpetrator possibly could have hosed themselves or possibly someone else down outside, washing the blood away down the drain. So now the stories evolve to, like, the murderer 
murdered, snuck it, broke into the house somehow, snuck upstairs past one other person's room, murdered Robert, and then took the time to like strip down and like use their dryer and washing machine. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, just going through the spin cycle, like, and they're upstairs. They're like, yeah. I didn't hear anything. It's right. Like, That's my story, yeah. and I'm sticking to it <laughs> within an hour and a half. Within so an this hour is a very either yeah. a very efficient, like murderer like that stranger that just broke in and like he's like he's got it down to every second like very very efficient with his time whenever he does this or he does this yeah or you know these three are full of shit well let's find out what it is (laughs) let's do that (laughs) well and then there is this like really odd detail of course about the blood on robert's body being like practically non-existent despite his intense stab wounds right so police believe that the perpetrator or perpetrators also use this time to clean off robert's body too but in order for them to be able to prove that they need to prove that there is also a blood presence inside of the home right so they use a blood detecting reagent all across the house on the stairs in the living room in the guest bedroom of course and in the bathroom and the place lights up like a christmas tree there are blue reactions everywhere in practically every single room so they document the reactions and take them to their experts and you want to know what they tell them uh, i kind of do because if it lights up like a christmas tree i'm hoping it says uh listen these are your guys but you never know. You truly never know. And, you know, but unfortunately, you're wrong, Jordy. Oh. The blood experts tell police that they did it wrong. So, according to the Peacock docuseries on this case, police applied the reagent to the surfaces in a way that would totally ruin the results and ruin any chances of anyone being able to try again. Basically, and like I learned a lot about how this reagent worked throughout this research, it can only be applied to the horizontal surfaces. If you applied the reagent to vertical surfaces like walls, it would drip and it wouldn't produce very good results and you also couldn't try again. The officers sprayed the reagent all over the shower, which they strongly suspected was where Robert was hosed down. But once that reagent is applied, there's no going back. There's no way to tell with any kind of scientific or legal certainty that there was a presence of blood almost anywhere inside of that townhouse. And I think that's one of those details that's so extremely frustrating because it's like, obviously, like either the universe like loves these people like the perpetrators Mm. or they're just the luckiest bastards in history or both (laughs) or both honestly and so it's just like the fact that like a mistake like that ruins any chance now and so it's like blood evidence has just been like completely eliminated from this case which is like what would be the smoking gun normally and it's just that one little mistake that keeps this case from you know harder to solve and so it's just Uh, it'll piss you off the longer you think about it. Yeah. Well, and like, unfortunately, it's just one of those situations where it's like, like these are human beings doing this kind of things and mistakes happen, you know? And and unfortunately mistakes happen in like very critical pieces of evidence. Mm -hmm. And like, like, what do you do to, to prevent that? Like, like, I don't know. Like it just, it feels like it could have happened in any situation. Right. Like, and unfortunately we just didn't have a whole lot else to go off of at this point right yeah so So it's just you know like the science and stuff is never wrong but humans can be and humans can make mistakes and stuff like that and so it's just one of those 
terrible, shitty situations, circumstances. Well, this was definitely not everything that police found when searching the apartment. No, police found something that, you know, maybe would be a bit odd in other circumstances. But in this case, the things that they found in Dylan's room were beyond alarming. Welcome to the Crime Vineyard. I'm Michelle. And I'm Candy. And this is Sips of Crime. Grab a glass, grab a friend, and let's dive in to some of the most notorious tales of murder, mystery, betrayal, and a few laughs along the way. You can find us at sipsofcrime.com and wherever you get your podcasts every other Monday. Back to you, Liam. Stay alive. So, Jordy, need to know how is your wine tasting? This case is making me drink a whole lot. So, I mean, it's tasting wonderful. It's easier to sip the longer I do it. And now I'm like more <laughs> relaxed and chill because, you know, like when I podcast, True. I'm kind of like always stiff <laughs> at first. Mm. And so, like, having wine to sip on really eases you into the process of <laughs> yeah. hearing yourself yeah. talk for an hour or so. True. Especially when it's a frustrating case like this because, like, every time it's like, right. There's a new detail. It's like, are you shitting me? Hold on. And it's yeah, like, you take right. another sip. <laughs> it's easier to swallow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I totally agree with that. And so that's why I think that you need to start incorporating. You need to start getting drunk on your podcast is basically what I'm trying to say. So let me know how I can support that. <laughs> okay. I mean, yeah, I'm down for it. I mean, you know, it's hard to get drunk off beer, like beer when you're doing it for just an hour. But I mean, I could Fair. pull it off with wine. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. We can we can transfer it. I think wine, wine with queers, I think, does have like a very distinct sound to it mm-hmm. um so just let me know how just let me know how i can support that maybe maybe there's a spinoff in the works here maybe there's a spinoff i mean i'm always down to expand and branch out <laughs> the let's bigger the it. better I'm, let's do some business baby i'll let you have the trademark <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's get right back into this case because we're speaking of wine we're going to need a whole lot more to get through this next half oh, so let's do boy. that so police make a list of well more than a dozen sex toys that they had documented from Dylan's room. And we're not just talking about, you know, again, we're going to get into a whole lot of like very graphic things here. So like buckle up everybody, (laughs) you know, we're not just talking about like a dildo, a vibrator, maybe some handcuffs. We are talking about some real specific fetish inducing toys here. And, you know, I'm not going to describe what most of this is. So go look it up for yourself. If you don't understand, or, you know, if you care to do that, you know, inside of Dylan's room, police find among other things shackles whips chains leather neck and wrist restraints floggers double-sided dildos ball gags penal gauges spacer bars a gas mask hood with a lock on the back nipple clamps chrome plated o-rings and an aerostec et 302r electro ejaculator i mean is is that all? I mean, that just sounds like my carry-on on any given vacation. <laughs> right. But my the one thing I took away from all that is what what the hell is an electro ejaculator? Well, okay, I have to send you pictures of it in order to like really get you like like a full picture on what the heck is going on. So again, go like go look those up. Um, but hold on, let me just let me just get this to you really fast. Because you know, I mean, like I felt like I was well versed in a lot of the like sexual like like not that I'm saying I don't use them, but I know what they are. Most of them are <laughs> self-explanatory, but um, an electro ejaculator just sounds not pleasant at all. 
No, it really doesn't. And again, like definitely, you know, it sounds like you like know a whole lot more about this than I do. But I definitely, <laughs> this is not my world at all. Um, just to be clear, and like I feel really like even weird talking about this because I know my mom like <laughs> listens to this podcast regularly. Um, so I'm just gonna end this. I'm just, just gonna end, end it right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I can't go any any further without feeling real weird at Thanksgiving. Um, so I just texted a picture of it to you. This is what it looks like in a very, um, uh, how do I put this, like, calm sense, I suppose. I was about to say, it looks like uh, either, like, an old 80s radio, old 80s mm-hmm. ham radio, or, like, something truckers would use to communicate with each other. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it does not look something I would want anywhere near my yeah. private parts. Yeah, well, so this is, like like just the base of it like there are lots of attachments to be used Mm -hmm. alongside this thing um but so just for our listeners right so we're talking about this little like box like evidently this is where the electro part comes from um and then you're also looking at a remote um so this is controlled outside of this machine let me just tell you about this machine like a little bit more so the aristec et302r electric electro ejaculator is a machine that uses a series of electric pulses to cause a person to ejaculate while they're under anesthetic or is otherwise incapacitated they are so like unconscious here they are most common in dom sub relationships so that's dominant versus submissive relationships due to the ability of the toy to force a partner to ejaculate on their terms and also the painful nature of this toy so i mean like all joking is sad and stuff like that i mean you know it's like if it makes you feel good and stuff like that, have at it. But at the same time, it, the use of the word anesthetic or mm-hmm. unconscious just does like it makes me yeah. feel weird. Like I got a little bit of chills. Sure, and like also like like again like think of what what you may like everyone listening like how this relates to Robert right? But like you know like thinking about. Like, that is how it's, like, talked about in, like, reviews. And, like, in like mm-hmm. the, like I found this all online kind of thing. And so, like, it's it's not just, like, this is not, like, how it relates directly to this case at all. Like, this is just what it's known to do. So, important context there, big time, I think. And, of course, you know, I'm assuming that Joseph, Victor, Dylan, or all three of them were very familiar with this toy. Well, kinda, Jordy. It turns out that only Joseph and Dylan were known to use this toy together. Remember when I told you that this three-way relationship was really more like two two-way relationships? Right, yeah. Well, here's how that worked. Joseph and Victor were more of a traditional romantic couple, right? They shared a bedroom together, you know, the very traditional kind of thing. And based on what they were able to learn about their relationship, Joseph was more dominant with Victor. But based on Joseph's search history and computer data, they learned that that could not have been more opposite for Joseph and Dylan's relationship. You see, on Joseph and Dylan's computer was a whole range of pornographic material, really kinky stuff here. And police also discovered that Joseph was a member of a BDSM chat room. And 
least hypothesize that this may have been actually where Joseph met Dylan. Based on the pictures and videos on their computers, police realized that in Joseph and Dylan's relationship, Joseph was definitely not the dominant one. He was 100% the submissive one in this relationship, and Dylan was definitely more of the dominant type. And I'll just let all of your imaginations go to clue you in on what those pictures and videos showed to give police that idea. I mean, that's good for them. I mean, you know, Dom sub kinky relationship that's perfect love i love that for you but again it's like what does all this have to do with robert a straight man true and you know but potentially though jordy a lot actually but we will come back to that in a little bit but in all of this we're missing a pretty significant piece of evidence in this case right and that piece of evidence is robert's autopsy but the results from that are back the autopsy reports that Robert had indeed died from three surgical-like stab wounds to his chest, about four and a half inches deep. The examiner writes that they were so perfectly inflicted that she believes no one was moving rapidly during the attack, neither the attacker nor Robert, but there were no ligature marks anywhere around his body or defensive wounds, leading the medical examiner to conclude that Robert was unconscious during this entire attack and not held down in any way. But other evidence leads the examiner to say that he was still alive while being stabbed. And what points them into that direction is the blood found in his intestines. That leads the examiner to believe that his digestive system was still operating at the time of death and there and ergo Robert was still alive. See that's the other thing too is like you have this toy that like you're supposed to use when someone's unconscious, like the slow stab mm-hmm. wounds and stuff like that. And so it's literally like all the pieces of a puzzle are there like right. to fit around. But it's like there's one piece, like the main piece of the puzzle that's missing that investigators don't have. And so it's like yeah. you can't complete the puzzle, so to speak. And so it's sure. just, again, another really frustrating part of this case well yeah and that you described that really really well i never really like thought about that way but like you're totally right like it does feel like there's like this one big thing that's gonna like complete this whole thing that's just like not there and they don't even i don't even it does i kind of got the vibe that they don't even know what that puzzle piece is right at this point they just know there's one big piece they're missing and if they get like there's a piece of evidence someone confesses or something like that but like once they get that one big piece it literally all just clicks together Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to me, right, like, when I heard, like, lack of blood, right, like, to me that says, okay, well, he must have died in some other way than these stab wounds, and these mm-hmm. stab wounds were inflicted afterwards, right? But, like, this is, like, clear evidence, like, you know, based on, like, scientific, you know, data um, that suggested here that, no, 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 like, he was actually still very much so alive in this whole thing, um, and, like, and, again, not for much longer, but, like, like as all this was happening, like, he was still breathing, he was, like, his blood was still popping like like all of this like everything was still working as it should have so like again conclude what you may from that i have my own conclusions and we will talk about all that well so there were also signs of asphyxiation however which could mean any kind of deprivation of oxygen normally that would look like strangulation but again there is no wound of any kind on robert's body that would point to that in any sort of way and again it's just like what we said like a minute ago. It's another one of those pieces of the puzzle. Looks like he was asphyxiated somehow. Like, was he strangled? Was it chokehold? Was it ligature strangle? Something like that. We just don't know. And it's yeah. just another <laughs> frustrating 
puzzle piece yeah. thrown onto the pile. Well, even more frustrating here, Jordy, is Robert's toxicology report, and that is even more interesting. Not because of what it shows necessarily, but because of what it doesn't show. Robert's toxicology report shows that Robert didn't have any kind of drugs or toxins in his system at all. And that's really interesting because there are some other marks that set investigators and examiners off from the very beginning. And those marks were eight needlepoint marks that were found on his neck, chest, and foot and hand. And when these were noticed, police asked paramedics if it was possible that they were from like a possible IV line, right? From when, you know, when Robert was put into an ambulance. And they don't rule that out as being the cause of the needle marks on his hand, sure. But the other markings, paramedics said, were not places any paramedic or any nurse or any doctor, for that matter, would use for an IV line, leading them to say conclusively 100% that the needle marks must have been made on Robert's body before paramedics ever arrived. And again, it's like I used to work in an OR, so I used to actually help put IVs and stuff in people. And most of these sound absurd. Like the ones on your hand, of course, that's a common place. But most of these other places is there's no way an IV line is going in there. a A foot or, you know, even if it's like a difficult IV you're trying to get, you're not going anywhere near the feet or in the neck or anything like that mm. for an IV. And so it um, it's just another weird, weird little yeah. puzzle piece. Very weird. Well, Robert was not a known drug user. So the idea that these were possible needle marks that were inflected for recreational use, for lack of better words, didn't make a whole lot of sense to police. And plus, even if he was a drug user, you know, without anyone knowing about it, they would have expected to find some sort of drug in Robert's system, right? Exactly. And so if he's not a known drug user and it wasn't the IV or anything like that, and he has all these marks, like I have an idea of what I think happened and it's like horrific to think about but like where did the marks actually come from is or what do the police think the marks come from well this leads to a wild theory Jordy that I had personally never heard of before I ended up reading this case police theorized that Robert may have been injected with a paralytic Now, this would explain the puncture wounds and why Robert didn't have any defensive wounds. Of course, Robert didn't have any defensive wounds because he couldn't defend himself physically, hypothetically speaking, right? But that leads police to a really specific kind of drug called succinylcholine. It's a paralytic drug that breaks down into the body so quickly that it is undetectable after just spending a few minutes in the body, but it leaves patients completely immobile. So, uh, I, I'm actually familiar with this drug. We just, uh, this drug, we call it sucks in the OR because I used to actually work, I used to be an anesthesia technician. Mm. And so I worked with the anesthesiologists and the CRNAs and stuff like that. And sucks is a drug that you would use to put patients under and paralyze their body before mm-hmm. surgery. And so it's it literally it is scary. It's like you cannot move at all. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that like I would love to know where that drug came from because that's mm-hmm. a very like controlled drug that like you'd only get right. in, like a medical like style situation. And so it's really mind-boggling how anyone would get their hands on that outside of being in the medical profession. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, really good point because it is, you know, like very common in, in the medical world, right? You know, from what I've learned, you know way more about this than I, than I do, I'm sure. Um, but like, so, so it's, so my, you know, immediate instinct goes to, okay, well, like whoever did this must have had that sort of connection. So must've been a nurse, mm-hmm. must've been a doctor, paramedic and stolen it. Right. Like that's the only thing that makes any sort of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, it, again, if we're going down this rabbit hole, but if you could explain, actually, because I, I think your your um, your insight here is going to be really interesting, is going to be really um, you know important. I guess how how does that work, right? Like, how does do you understand? I guess the the scientific part of because because if you inject yourself with pretty much any other drug, I would imagine, anyways, right? It it would come up in the tox report. So how does it just break down? Like, how does it how is it completely undetectable? I I'm, don't know like the full like medical terms or whatever, mm-hmm. but it like. Um... The way it attaches to, like, your blood and your system and stuff like that, like, it's one of those drugs that we have to constantly keep pushing in. Every, mm. uh, I'm not sure the exact time frame, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's, like, every so hour or so. And so oh, it's one of those drugs okay. that we have to keep injecting into the lines and stuff like that. And you kind of really got to monitor to make sure, mm. like, you're staying on top of it and monitoring their vitals and stuff like that. And so it's, again, it's one of those drugs that's really weird that someone that's not a medical professional would have their hands on Mm. um, because it just, it's not really used outside of putting people to sleep for a major surgery Mm. because it's, again, it's one of those things that has to be monitored Mm. in a medical situation. So it's just really weird that it would even be in any sort of case outside of an OR, an operating room. Mm. So I guess if I'm understanding it correctly, it just, it simply just works so fast that it just is gone. Oh, like it works minutes? super fast. Like it will go okay. through your system really. Like it usually takes, oh my goodness, less than a minute to take mm. effect. If they're like mm. pushing it through an IV line or something, or yeah. if it is being injected directly. So... Mm. And so my understanding, too, with, like, medical examiners, again, just through my research, is that, um, like, medical examiners, like, typically don't even test for it because it breaks down so fast. Does does that sound right? Yeah. And so, like like I said, it's another one of those things. It's not like um, a normal drug people would have access to. So I'm sure sure they wouldn't normally test it um, because not only does it, again, breaks down so fast, but, again, just, you know, sound like a broken record, but... The fact that, like, no one's going to assume that anyone, any normal civilian has access Mm. to this drug, so there's really no point to test it. Yeah. Um, So the fact that it is present and, like, maybe it didn't come up because they didn't test it, like, I can understand why because it's just a drug that, like, there are other street type drugs i'm sure i'm not an expert in that but i'm sure there are other drugs you can get on the street that have the same effect or something like that um Mm. but the fact that this one specific drug that's used very commonly used in anesthetics for surgeries i can see why that wouldn't they wouldn't test for that to begin with Mm interesting from what i read too like none of the three of these guys are affiliated with the medical world at all and so like that it it is kind of left field ish for me yeah like if if we're to assume that you know some sort of guilt from them like where did this come from and it's not like even something like you can't just like any job at a at a hospital you can have access to like these things Mm. are kept in machines that like you need Mm. your fingerprint your id badge and all this stuff yeah and so like the only people that can get it is a doctor, a CRNA, 
or uh, nurse. Wow. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, like all of this is like super crazy, right? But none of this points a direct finger at anyone being Robert's killer, let alone those killers being Joseph, Victor, and Dylan. But the investigators do have something that could help. It's DNA evidence that was analyzed through the medical examiner's office. That DNA is seminal DNA, and it was found inside of Robert's anal cavity. It's a massive aha moment, right? Like, whoever's semen is inside of Robert must have been the one to sneak into Robert's bedroom at night, paralyze him, use this, you know, fetishize machine on him in some sick sex game, and then stab him three times to his chest and then wash him off before placing him right back onto his bed. But... When those tests come back, they are absolutely baffled by their results because the semen that was inside of Robert's anal cavity belongs to Robert himself. So that is just one of those details that you almost it's too wild to be true. That's almost mm -hmm. like a, a, a twist and like some cheesy detective story because like you have the smoking gun where it's like, oh, we have you know, uh, DNA semen found in the victim's body then their, you know, anus. And so, of course, that's going to be like the smoking gun because it's like, mm -hmm. this is going to lead us to our killer. And then when it like is revealed to be the victim himself, that's yeah. just one of those too crazy to believe. Yeah. And yeah. so it's like the end of a bad like CSI episode or something like that. Yeah. Like, I can't even wrap my head yeah. around it. Yeah, or the end of a really bad like podcast, like haha, like we're at the we're toward the end of this podcast, but like so because like that's where, <laughs> just where we are. But like no, but like seriously though, it's like it's it's so unbelievable that it's like like WTF. It's like what like where the heck do we even go from there? Right? Where do like you, how do even... you come back from that? Where do... <laughs> right? But like like that combined with this like weird sex electro ejaculator machine, right? Like like that like to me is like okay he was unconscious this machine works best when like somebody's unconscious like cool and then on top of that like he like there's like his own semen like all over himself like because like when you find semen right like inside of a victim inside of someone's dead like you uh, obviously like immediate assumption is like okay sexual assault like murder like that's like that's how this whole thing happened. But like yeah. when it's his own, like how the fuck does that even happen? And how do you explain that? How do you explain that? Yeah. And it's not, and it's not like he's like this like big, like sex deviant at all. Like he's like very much so a house husband. Um, and so like, where, like what the fuck? Like what the fuck? Like that's the only thing I have to say is like, what the fuck? Cause like how, like what was the series of events that like led to somebody like, like in the span of an to, hour and a half In the span of an hour and a half. <laughs> How do yeah. things escalate so quickly Seriously. from the time you, he gets there after just setting this meeting up like this like overnight sleepover right. that is supposed to be his very best friend's house and then mm -hmm. within an hour it leads to all this and now his own semen's inside of his right. anus and stuff like that like it Again, make it make sense because none of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. Well, and like let's like let's try to make it make sense, right? Because if we're to believe this story that we're trying to that people are trying to make us believe, right? It's the this guy within an hour and a half, all within an hour and a half ish, right? Um, like this somebody like everyone goes to bed, somebody breaks into the house walks upstairs past somebody who lives in the home, right past their bedroom, walks in, injects them with this paralytic, 
sexually assaults them, you know, with this machine or in some other way. So that way they, you know, ejaculate all over themselves and then inserts that semen into their anal cavity, stabs them to death, cleans up their body, walks back through this entire house, down the stairs, out this, you know, back door without disturbing the dust and the the cobwebs and all that jazz. And all, again, within an hour and a half, and with all without these other three guys that are in the house hearing a thing beyond a scream. Yeah, and so again, it's that's too many coincidences to line up like that. Like the there's just, it's just not believable. But I think that's the frustrating thing about it's this absurd. case is the fact that you have all these absurd, bizarre, like out of left field details and stuff like that, and it's like like none of them fit together enough to be like okay this is conclusively what happened this is who did mm-hmm. it this is this is like the series of events because even like the timeline is kind of like all over the place right because it's like yeah like he um he has like the paralytic he's like these toys were used on him then he was stabbed and then his body was washed and then all this like how did all this happen in right. such a short amount of time right and it's just it's just Bewildering, I guess is the it word is. I'm looking for to try to wrap your head around all this. Very good word to describe this. <laughs> Thank um, you. And, you know, and I think, you know, and I have so many thoughts about, like, how all of this ended up happening and, like, the the end result of all this crap, um, you know, and it's obviously, like, beyond insane. Beyond, beyond insane. And it's, you know, not over yet either, though, Jordy, as I'm <gasps> sure you, I know you know that that's, that that's true. But, you know, to get to the rest of this story... And to see how this all ends up playing out, you'll just have to wait for part two, which will drop on Beers with Queers this coming Monday. Oh, a two-parter. So, yeah, if you want to know, like, how this absolutely bizarre and the most bizarre case you'll ever hear about ends, Mm -hmm. you get to uh, spend some more time with us. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, big time. Yeah, and again, there is, so, again, like, I tease you guys at the top of this case. Um, I hope that you guys, you know, like, saw how I was teeing this whole thing up. And believe me, by now, um, there is so much that we have not even touched on, not even gotten to yet, because we had to talk about all of this just in one part, right? And so just think about what's in part two. Um, but, you know, tell everyone how that all happens and how they can listen to all your other cases. Tell everyone where they can find you guys online. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So you can find us where, of course, Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. You can find us on iTunes or Spotify. Um, social media links, we have Instagram at Beers with Queers Pod, that's P-O-D, or on Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. And... Um, you know, we post our episodes every Monday, right at midnight. We try to stay on top of that. And then we have a back catalog of 42 or so episodes. And so I'm excited to do this case because this is definitely one that's yeah stays in the back of my mind constantly. Because I'm always like, I'll be doing oh, something. Time. And then I'll be like, you know, whatever. I wonder if there's any updates to that case yeah. and, so, and stuff like that. So I'm excited to tell you guys how this uh all ends. Well, we will give you all of the updated stuff like on this part two for sure. Like literally up to up to the where we are right at this very second. Um so and I have not 
you know, seen a thing about what you guys are coming up with on this part two. And so I'm so excited to see what you guys are coming up with. Excited to go into this totally blind. I know like the general story, but I'm excited to see where you guys go with this for sure. Um, but in the meantime, thank you so much for coming on and thank you all so much for listening. We are going to put all of our sources on our website so you can read everything for yourself and probably come up with a few theories too. And if you are just loving this podcast and are just wondering how you can tell everyone and anyone about it, the best way to help others discover this podcast is by leaving us a five-star rating and a review wherever you are listening right now. So make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you're wondering what we have in store for you next week, here's a quick sneak peek. Hello, everybody. It's Liam. And I'm Cornelia Nicholson. Next week, I'm stepping into the crime vineyard, and we're talking about a bizarre, mysterious death that took place on a snowy Midwestern December morning. It's an unsolved case from almost 100 years ago, and it's almost too strange to believe. But it's all true, and we'll tell you all about it next Wine Wednesday on another episode of Crime Over Wine. Proud member of the Podnougan Network.